0: This is Larie Daniel Favors, and welcome to the hub. that I was junior Bible quiz champion three years in a row. As a youngster, I have a very firm, root, firmly rooted grasp of biblical history, or so I thought. So I thought until I got my hands on this book, The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and The Coming Crisis. Joining me now is the author of said book, Jared Yates Sexton, a political analyst and the author uh, who kind of snatched my wig a little bit and I don't even wear wigs. So I, I think we need to dive right in because we have talked a lot up until this point about the challenges that we face particularly as people of African descent who subscribe generally largely to a religion that perhaps well hell we know it did a religion that played a very active role in in creating the conditions and supporting the conditions that led to our oppression as black people but this is a story that is not limited to just the way that the Christian church has impacted the communities of African descent across the world this is a story that's really unpacking the history behind Christianity so listen I know a lot of y'all are already you know clutching your pearls this is not I'm not going to ask you to you know, give up your relationship with Jesus. This is not what that is. But it is important, particularly as we are in the midst of a repeating cycle, that we are aware of what is happening and the, the decisions that brought us to this point. Jared, it is a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us this morning.
1: Hey, thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. I, I wanna start first by, if you could lay out the, the groundwork for us, because, you know, Jesus loves me this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We have a very genteel, lamb-like, sheep-like approach to uh, in understanding our, our relationship to the church, and I say we as Americans generally, but your book really does highlight that there has been, really from the time that the early Christians morphed from being sort of this cult, this insular cult, to coming to power within Rome, you outlined the fact that violence has essentially fundamentally always been a really heavy part of the Christian experience. Can you talk with us just a little bit about that journey from becoming uh, growing as this cult group, this small group of outcasts who are followers of Christ to becoming one of the most powerful uh sects in charge of what was then the Roman Empire and what was now what is now uh the world wide over?
1: Yes. Yeah, so this is like one of the stories. I, I grew up in a very, very uh, extreme evangelical church. Uh, what we're now looking at is, uh, you know, Christian nationalism, which has like weird white supremacist conspiracy theory ideas behind it. That's what I grew up in. Mm. Um, and I needed to write something like this book in order to understand the trajectory of both Christianity, but also white supremacy and how this power has proliferated itself over and over and over again. And what I found when I started this, because, you know, it's one of those things we get conventional history and things just sort of happen and you don't know why they happen. You know, you don't really get into the the, the nuts and the bolts of it. And what I uh, started with was I wanted to understand how Christianity, this absolutely persecuted exiled sect of of believers, this cult suddenly came to embody the state religion of Rome. And what I found... Was that when we have these cycles of power and we're looking at another one now, you know, when the United States is having its own problems, it's considered, you know, the the main hegemonic power in the in the world. It's the main superpower. When all of a sudden things start sort of uh, going a little bit wonky, when things start sort of falling apart a little bit and declining. We have to replace mythologies. We have to take ideas that, you know, sort of give us the center of gravity for our world. And we either, you know, replace them entirely or we update them. And what I found was that Christianity was a really, really useful idea that the Roman Empire used to replace its own mythology. Because the main uh, religion of Rome, and there were many religions, right? You could, you could have many, many gods that you could worship, but you had to worship the emperor, That first and foremost, the emperor of Rome had to be worshipped as an all-powerful, almighty being. Well, when things start falling apart in Rome, they need something else. They need some other Mm. story that will go ahead and give that gravity that we're talking about. And Christianity was perfect because of the monotheistic idea that there's one God that you have to follow and you are either on that God's side or you're against that God. Mm. And that was a really useful idea. It was an incredibly world-changing idea where If you had God on your side, you could do anything. And you could hurt anybody because they were sinners, because they were evil. They were on the outside. And so what that did was it put into motion an incredible soap opera of power. And by the way, spoiler alert, white supremacy that has echoed throughout the centuries because it allowed people to move beyond the idea of, oh, we need to work on things as opposed to I have good on my side. You are obviously evil and now you must be crushed
0: wow this the the idea of division playing such a central role in christianity we are the good guys you are the bad guys do we know where that came from i don't recall any of the red letter text in my junior bible quiz bibles having jesus with that sort of approach where does that the ability to wrap up such uh serious pronouncements about the quality of another person's life where does that come from within the christian religion
1: well, you know, for me, the one thing that really uh, stuck out to me in writing this book, and it, it, it changed my, reli- my religious ideology, it changed the way I looked at Christianity entirely, because, you know, I, I was raised in that extremist environment in which we didn't talk about Jesus very much. You know, he, he, would, he would come out on Easter or on Christmas, but otherwise you're talking about the Old Testament in which God is smiting his enemies or mostly the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, of course, which is one of the most influential texts ever written, it creates an environment where there's no room for compromise. There's no room for sharing the world with other people. You can only see them through the lens of they are either evil agents who are in league with Satan Mm -hmm. or they're unwittingly in league with Satan. And if you compromise with them, if you allow them even a moment, this apocalyptic ideology, which is again, what we're dealing with now, right? In all all fronts, you're in a spiritual war that will determine the fate of the universe, uh, the fate of eternity. And that is an incredibly powerful story, and it overrides everything about the New Testament, more or less. Uh, the The Gospel of Christ completely goes away because if you are talking again about this sort of, um, you know, the the in group versus the out group. That is not at all what Christ's gospel was. Christ's right. gospel was right. a gospel of, of sharing. You can take a look at something like the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, still reads as completely pertinent to our situation today. But once you crowd that out and you replace it with, oh, if we don't win a zero-sum game, we will be destroyed. And that mm-hmm. apocalyptic ideology has been useful for power um, ever since it was written down.
0: It's very convenient, this we're the good guys and they're the bad guys, so we can do whatever must be done in order to handle this situation. You reference a a concept known as righteous persecution. Can you tease that out a bit for us?
1: Yeah, so righteous persecution is, uh, again, this really dangerous thing. Um, It it more or less originated with St. Augustine, who is like one of the major uh, ideologues of the church. And the idea is this. Since you have right on your side, since you are fight, if you are uh, and there's an old saying that happened, by the way, um, and and this history was hidden from me. And I think a lot of people when the Christians eventually came into power. I want people to think about what happened when ISIS started coming into power, going around, just absolutely raising temples, destroying cultures, you know, rolling people back in time uh, with force. The Christians more or less laid waste to all of the knowledge of the the, the ancient world, and so-called pagans were persecuted, murdered, imprisoned, forced to uh, capitulate, and, and, and of course convert. And then, when you take a look at that, what you start to realize is, if you are fighting on behalf of capital G good, right? If and, and the old the old saying was, uh, "There is no crime for those with Christ." So the idea is, if you have right on your side. You can't be judged by earthly laws or earthly morals or ethics. You have uh, you not only have a right, you have an obligation to go ahead and persecute people. Mm. And St. Augustine put this out there. The idea was you are doing it for their own good, right? This is something you look around now in modern times and it's like, oh, we're going after, of course, uh, vulnerable populations. We're taking away their voting rights. We're making sure that their uh, individual liberties are being taken away you can look at that and you can sleep at night saying we're doing it for their own good right we're taking care of this on their behalf they don't know they don't know any better because they're sick because they're wounded with sin or you know the secular world and so what you do is you that that more or less that allows you as a persecutor to sleep at night because you're doing it on behalf of good
0: so this feels to me like the perfect religion for bullies. Uh, it feels to me like the perfect religion for people who had already reached some decisions about where they saw themselves in the world. This is exactly the type of justification that was needed to exclude genociding the indigenous Americans here on this continent. This is the type of justification that was used to justify enslaving millions of Africans and trafficking them uh, into lifelong enslavement and then re- exceeding what had previously been known about the evils that man could inflict on each other. And it feels to me that if you're not restrained by earthly laws... If that makes sense to me. Of course, We don't need a Voting Rights Act. Yeah, we have a Voting Rights Act, but we will rest- we will not be limited to the Voting Rights Act. We are not going to honor your rights under that act because this act really does it has no power over us because we've got God on our side and there can be no crime when you've got God on your side. We don't need to respect your claims that Black Lives Matter. We don't need to respect your claims for housing. We don't need to respect any of the policy decisions that would benefit the people because we are not restrained by earthly laws. And This to me feels, uh, one, it feels really, I, I gotta be honest with you, and I said this before we started recording, it causes me to question so many things. And I was already openly comfortable with questioning these things. One of the things that you outline in the book is a variety of the votes, that were taking place, the policy decisions that were being made that really solidified Christianity. And you referenced the Council of Nicaea. Can you explain to us what was happening in that moment? What was being decided in that moment? And what was the impact of the decisions that the basically the the ruling class was making about this religious practice? Well,
1: so one of the things we we have to understand, so you know, we're we're being told this story right now, and and I want to go ahead and bring it into the modern time, right? So one of the the things that's happening is as we're starting to argue about what direction we should take in the world, right? And again, we're at this weird moment where America is sort of declining a little, and we feel it, right? Our, mm-hmm. our we're we're no longer expecting the the quote unquote American dream moving ahead of where the the generation before us was, and what we're being told is that something is missing, right? That, that there's something we, – we have a moral or spiritual decay, which, by the way, is not a new claim. We see that over and over and over again. And the thing that we keep hearing is if only we can just reinstall Christianity as the main operating system of the world, everything will be fine. Right. But what you actually find and, – and this goes back to all of these councils, right – when Christianity becomes the main arbiter of the world, you have to view the world through a Christian lens in which some people are higher than other people, right? Mm. All of a sudden, you figure out it's not actually about religion. It's not actually about that monotheistic idea. It actually, even if that is the main operating system in the world, which it is after Rome, right? After Rome sort of falls apart, we go into this feudal, you know, kingdom type situation where, it, like, you have, I think it's like, 1% to 2% of the world can read in the, in the Western world. Mm-hmm. Everybody else mm-hmm. is like locked into, you know, peasantry or like a high peasantry. And what ends up happening is that's not stable because none of this is ever stable. Right. Even within a monotheistic, theocratic world, you still have to have in-groups. And outgroups, you still have to quabble over what we call orthodoxy. So even in these places where you have this top-down, theocratic, authoritarian structure, you're still going to have infighting. And so you constantly have to say, oh, no, 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 no we've got Christ on our side. They don't have Christ on their side. And they're over there and they're like, no, Christ is on our side. It's like, eh, it looks like there's more of us than there is you, and right? we've got the guns. So, <laughs> right. Well, in some cases, swords and other cases, yeah. guns. And so what ends up happening is that it just continues to divide itself over and over and over again. And eventually what has to happen is that the in-group with power has to create control mechanisms. Mm -hmm. They have to be able to throw people out, oppress them, and or create these things. uh, We've probably heard of them before, inquisitions, right? Which is where you take the state power and you create administrative functions of persecution. Suddenly, you're, you're holding hearings, you're torturing people, you're killing people, you're exercising people. And as that is happening... The power keeps dividing itself over and over and over again until, shocker, we end up with just a few people with the power, right? Because it's not enough to have that theocratic ordering. It has to continually divide itself over and over again.
0: Mm. So... You've mentioned the caste system that is an inherent part of the Christian understanding. And I want to go into that, that great order of being um, that you reference in the book. But let's stick with this council for a moment, because I, I, my understanding is that there were some pivotal decisions made in <clears throat> the late 300s. And these were now here comes my voice. I think it's the devil trying to stop us from having this conversation. <laughs> but there is this council of Nicaea in particular, 388 AD, I think it was, or thereabouts. And they made some decisions about divinity. And they made some decisions about Jesus's divinity and who could be considered divine. And that's always been very intriguing to me because the way I had understood it was, it's kind of like imagining Congress voting on whether or not Jesus was actually divine and having to have a vote like that. Because if Jesus as a human being was divine, then that meant all human beings might have access to that same source of di- of divine inspired power. And there were some... Political decisions that were made about how that story of Jesus was going to be told going forward. Can you tease that part of it out for us a bit?
1: Yeah. So one of the more interesting parts about all of this, and 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 again, you you started this off uh, this segment by talking about the fact that we don't need to abandon religion, right? Yeah. And 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 you know, I've got a little bit of pushback on this book that's like, oh, this is an anti-Christian book. It's like, no, this is an anti-power book, right? Like, I'm I'm sorry, but even if you read the text, and I think you and I are familiar enough. Uh, The the Bible ends by telling you, stick with what's in the text. You don't have the authority to continue to tease this out, right? But uh, inevitably, what happens is we keep having state or temporal powers that have to convene. And it's obviously a bunch of old white men over and over and over again who get in a room, and it's based on their interpretation. And here's the weird thing. I know this is going to be shocking to you and your listeners. The way that they interpret the Bible is through their own power. Mm -hmm. And they are consistently getting, and, and real fast, just a quick little primer on this. People always ask me, what is ideology, right? Do people actually believe these things? And it's really funny. Most of the time they do believe them, but ideology is a means of being able to sleep at night. It's the story that you tell yourself that allows you to make sense of why you do the things that you do. And you had talked about, of course, the slave trade. You've talked about the genocides of of, of indigenous people around the world. Those are awful things. We always have these conversations where people say, oh, back then they didn't know any better. Well, that's crap. That's yeah. absolutely, they, yeah. they, you can't sit there and look at this thing happening and know that it's okay, but you tell yourself a story, right? So we keep having these people meeting in these rooms, like in Nicaea, you have to have a conversation about, oh, what is God? What is the nature of the Holy Trinity? What is the nature of Jesus? When, and by the way, like other things like when is Easter, you know, and, and you're having these big giant uh, uh, groupings of people. It's, it has nothing to do with scripture it has everything to do with how temporal powers use scripture mm. and that is the entire purpose of this book is to talk about you know we can have discussions about religion what matters to people what gives them uh not just faith but what gives them uh energy what gives them hope what gives them the ability to work with other people how they they look at the universe but when you start getting into things like nicaea and you start getting into you know conversations about Uh, Is the Trinity all one or are they three separate beings? You know, all of these sort of movements, all of these decisions are always based on how will this help me and how will it help my power as opposed to how do we interpret the doctrine? And the interpretation of the doctrine, it changes everything constantly.
0: Wow. Wow. This is fascinating to me because at the time that this is happening, when is St. Augustine? What century is he? Is this like seven, eight 800s, 700s?
1: Augustine takes place right around as Rome is falling apart.
0: Okay. So, one of the things that I'm curious about, because this is as this is happening and as this the development of the feudal world is coming about, as this one to two percent can read, my understanding is that that is a a Western or a, I guess, European, it wasn't really Europe at this point, but that is a European reality. Because as we're moving into the seven and eight hundreds, we've got, you know, libraries being established throughout. I mean, libraries had always been in Africa, but we've got, you know, Songhai, Mali, these massive kingdoms. You've got folks like Mansa Musa, who are traveling the, the breadth of the continent, distributing wealth as they're making their sojourn to mecca so we've got these two very different worlds because while europe is descending into its dark ages africa's on the rise and and they they are not necessarily caught up in this this ideology they're not necessarily Present in this war until we have North Africans going into Europe uh, with the seven hundred, you know, dominating uh, Spain, Portugal, what we now know as the southern portions of Europe, and that's when we begin to see some of the the clashing really happening around issues of othering around concepts like race. And so my question is, if it let's talk about the caste system, that great order of being, and how these two worlds were kind of developing at the same time. Uh, you know, Africa and many parts of Africa are in decline. You know, they, the, the portion of Egypt that is at this point run by Rome is definitely on the decline but the rest of the continent of Africa is is doing what they had always done which is you know being Africans building science math and all of these things and the bodies of knowledge that they had access to I want to tie that to the restrictions on knowledge that we're seeing in Europe because you mentioned if only one or two percent can read and that was a a way of maintaining who had access to power let's contrast that to what's happening when you have these other societies where most of the population is literate. If not in actual literate, uh, being able to read on paper, text on paper, signals on paper, the oral history component is there. So we have one society, and I'm calling it society loosely because Africa is like thousands of societies, but we've got one portion of the world where we are not limiting power to just a few who are able to read, and this other portion of the world where knowledge is scary, science is scary. You mentioned one of the uh, the scientists, Hai Pasha. This woman is destroyed and she's a brilliant genius, like scientist. And so there's this fear of knowledge that seems to really grip European world, even in its infancy, that we're not seeing reflected in other parts of the world. What was that about?
1: Well, before I answer, because I, I'm so glad we're talking about this part of it, I want to admit something, which is I, one of the things when I write a book is I'm very excited to dispel my own ignorance, right? Mm-hmm. And whenever I write a book, I'm very excited, like I've got a central idea, but I'm so excited to have my entire world destroyed. Like when I wrote <laughs> uh, the previous book, American Rule, I thought I had a great understanding of American history. And it turned out like from the first day of research, I was like, I know nothing right because what we're constantly talking about and and this is one of the reasons i write these books we're talking about what information is hidden and why it's hidden right so for instance i'll be honest with you when i looked at so-called western civilization i thought that there was something about the advancement of it. I thought it was the advancement of a civilization that would meet less advanced societies and then roll over them. Right. I think that's the story right. that we're told, right? It's the idea that that European society in some way or another is smarter or better or more innovative. Maybe it got to more technology than other places did and then just rolled over them. I had no idea. How advanced the societies were outside of European civilization. because what happens following Rome? I mean, people need to understand the fall of Rome is an apocalypse. like it is it is literally it takes like a modernization of the world and just rolls over it. And what happens with feudalism is just absolutely abhorrent. I mean, people's lives shorten incredibly. uh the 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 nature and the quality of their lives completely fall off. Meanwhile, what's happening in the Muslim world? I mean they are so advanced and they are they are just absolutely there's so much innovation going on. You go over to Africa, these civilizations are absolutely teeming, right? And you even go into uh let's go into North America. Let's look at the indigenous population. What I was told in an Indiana classroom is that they were absolutely primitive and they were right. so, you know, overwhelmed by the civilization of Europe. What I figured out writing this is that It wasn't that European civilization was advanced. It was the reason that they were able to do what they did is one, the shamelessness of it, Mm. their ability to take over societies. And by the way, if you look at all of them, right? Yes, there are top down power structures, obviously, they're there, but they're utilitarian societies. They take care of each other. Right. They they most of them look at the, the genders and they say, oh, we're equal. We all have our roles to play. There doesn't have to be this patriarchal top down structure. Um, you know, you even take a look at things like a Native American society. They have trans people. You know, they, they have like a tolerance and an openness right. and they take care of each other. They have an incredible relationship with the environment where they say we need to make sure that this sort of, uh, you know, the, it stays stable that we're not, you know, destroying things, that we're not destroying the world. What happens is European society kind of takes off those restrictors and they just go in and they're more than happy to go in and enslave people. They're more than happy to go in and carry out genocides and and destroy the environment. And, you know, part of it is they have these stories and it's the story of something like a Christianity that allows them to go to sleep at night to say oh yes we're going to enslave entire generations of african people well how are we doing it oh yeah noah noah and ham right mm-hmm. we'll we'll have a story that says they deserve it right and and suddenly you can make sense out of it and you can go in and do it and carry it out it is not that this is the best of all worlds which is what we keep getting told right yeah. And anytime that that you or I make like a, a a call for reform or a call for progress, people say, "Hey, I know things aren't perfect, but like look around you. What a beautiful society We couldn't have gotten here, you know, if it wasn't for someone like a Christopher Columbus. Mm-hmm. And what you actually do is you're creating this mythology, That Western civilization was the best of all the civilizations. It was the most forward of all of them. And all these other ones were barbarians, right? right? They needed to be brought to heel. They needed to be enslaved. They needed to be wiped out and destroyed or, or taken over. And the truth is, no, we are living in a world that has been created by warlike people. We're living in a world that has been created by people with a shamelessness. People who, again, going back to the great chain of being, have this ordered idea that you have people up top and you have people down low and the people up top should rule over the people down low. That ideology, and again, that's how they slept at night, that story, that ideology is, again, what we're dealing with now. They think there are rightful rulers and rightful servers. And that concept and the shamelessness that that sprung from it That's what created this modern world.
0: Shamelessness is a powerful thing because if I am shameless in my willingness to use violence and my willingness to to buy into the idea that there are hierarchical uh, structures to things, and quite frankly, I'm at the top, you're at the bottom. It is what it is. So says the Lord, right? So if I'm if I'm comfortable in that sort of shamelessness, and I'm encountering societies that have that more utilitarian approach, I'm encountering societies that are based on an ability to live in harmony with the earth, and even if they are having you know intra or inter community squabbles and battles within them. I, you know, I remember learning about many African uh, nations where after war, you had to spend some time in fasting and prayer to remove yourself from the spiritual stench that comes when you take a life. You couldn't just come back into the community, you know, hey, we just finished the war. Like, you had to cleanse and purify yourself because there was such a violation that was understood in the taking of life. If I'm of that people... And I'm confronting people who have a similar understanding, there's going to be limitations on how devastating of a war-like engagement we would allow ourselves to take. But if I'm shameless, and if I buy into the idea that in this caste system, there's the God of the universe, Jesus, Holy Ghost, and me, the ruler of the church, and then comes everybody else down below... And if me as the ruler of the church, you mentioned that the emperor, worship of the emperor in Rome was, was quintessential, and I can deify the king, I can deify the queen, and I'm shameless. What, well, in Jared, when I run into your utilitarian communities, I will bowl you over. It doesn't even matter if you've got weapons like mine. You're limited in your consciousness. You're limited in the shame that you have and in the value that you have for life. You're not going to engage. You may not even have the military capacity to plan for war against an enemy like this. Audience, think about it this way. If aliens come from space and they see us the way we see cockroaches, right? Like you don't think twice about getting a can of Raid and spraying a cockroach and eliminating it. That cockroach has no to to amount any form of resistance and i I hate to use animals or insects as a sort of analogy for uh humanity but i I think when you do it that way it can sometimes jar the consciousness just a bit but there was they didn't have they didn't stand a chance
1: well and and by the way i want to go ahead because one of those main american mythologies is that oh we came to the continent and the native people oh they were so sweet but they just they couldn't hang with us, right? They didn't have civil... They had a beautiful civilization, first of all. Second of all, a lot of the reason why we live in the world we do is because of the germs, of course, that created a massive dying off so large, by the way, and people don't know this, it changed the environment. That's how massive of a die-off it was following the Columbian Exchange. But third... You know what the secret weapon was that white people taking over from Native populations was? It was that the Native populations tried to conduct their business with them with honor. The thing you keep finding with the Native populations, they couldn't believe how much the white civilization just lied to them. And when you go into the documents, and I don't care if it's Washington, Jefferson, any of these founding fathers, right? Basically, they completely strategized lying. And that lying and that ability to not conduct themselves with honor and going back to the idea of shamelessness, that's a secret weapon on on the level of a nuclear bomb right? Because it's meanwhile uh, manipulating, moving against people, and you want to go back to enslavement. That was a large part of it, It, is they would go into, you know, these areas and they would, like, lie to people and they would manipulate them and move them around. It was that ability to do anything in the name of power that was the secret weapon for Western civilization. It had nothing to do with them being better or stronger or smarter. It had everything to do with those stories that allowed them to more or less act completely unethically and, and Immorally.
0: This is a lot, Jared, because the, we haven't even gotten to the modern era yet, because if this is still in place, this shamelessness, this willingness to lie, this lack of honor. And it, what strikes me is that, you know, when i go into a, a church or a religious community within black spaces, the, you don't lie. That's against the love of Jesus. You ha- you conduct yourself honorably. You engage, and, and there is still, even after all of this, there is still rooted within these communities and understanding that there is right and there is wrong, and you are supposed to treat people correctly. And one of the things that has always struck me when I was studying how Christianity was, was weaponized as against enslaved Africans, you know, altering which Bible you give to enslaved people, that's just diabolical, you've got at least yeah. two places in the Bible that says you shall not add, not add another jot nor tittle. And then there's like a whole bunch of books after that. And I always confused me and it was something I got in trouble raising in Sunday school. But you've got on these plantations, people who are cut off from their culture, cut off from their stories, cut off from their language, which ties them to the land, cut off from any of the psychological tools that culture provides for you to manage trauma and to navigate it in a space that allows you to hold on to your humanity. And they are instead only allowed the ability to embrace this repackaging of Christianity that basically says it is by divine order you are in this position. And one day, maybe if you serve me well enough, me your white master, maybe your sins will be washed whiter than snow one day snow one day in the hereafter. But there is a real belief in Christianity. In black communities, like you can't tell, like Jesus is real, like miracles yep. happen. We have to have our names written in the Lamb's book of life. There is an earnestness about the belief, and I—I I will be honest. I spent a lot of time in white churches because my parents are military. We moved around a lot, and my dad was, you know, a preacher. My mama was a missionary. So I mean, we—I have seen, I think, just about every denomination that one can see, and the earnestness that I experience in white churches is an earnestness to the tradition, I think to the religious practice, but the belief doesn't hold the same genuine like they're not searching the text of jesus i I'm, i grew up in you know what was the name bob Hagee and these doomsday you know prophets and and you know tbn and so i i'm seeing how it shows up differently it's not the same religion in practice and i i never thought of it this way but the shamelessness that allows my white christian friends to be justified in their view of the world and in the way that they dominate and that they see world dominance i don't see that in black christians is this still well, there something that is a part of of who we are at this very moment?
1: Well, there are different components to it, right? So when when you're actually like and and this is the thing that I've gotten closer to, the idea of Christianity as as a humble matter of faith and hope and community, that was not ever anything that was presented to me, right? That it was mm-hmm. always about Power. It was about stewards, right? And so, basically, in the white church, and and specifically in more extreme ones that I was involved in, you were a steward of the world, or you were a warrior in a spiritual battle. And there are these twin components of Christianity. One is this idea of obedience, right? The idea that you are a server of an almighty God. The best you can do is to have a relationship with him and fight for him, right? Then there's another component to it, which is they're coming for us. And you want to go back to the idea of, of of slavery in America. The entire idea behind it was that there are so many more of them, the enslaved people, than us. And by the way, they don't know any better. They don't have they don't have the intellectual capacity. And by the way, they don't have the quote unquote intellectual capacity because they kept them illiterate by a matter of choice. Right. And for the record, I just want to do a quick aside. When slavery was abolished, nobody picked up the mechanisms of organizing and democracy quicker than the freed people. It was immediate. And that's why you had to have the Ku Klux Klan. That's why you had to have open white supremacist movements is because it didn't matter that they had been kept from reading and or these tools. They picked it up immediately. That story, though, that one race was superior to another, and then meanwhile you have to use cruelties, you have to use, uh, you know, the control of, of information, which it's important to point out. Going back to what we talked about where peasants were kept from reading, that way they would toil in the fields. That's exactly what ended up happening in the enslavement period is they went ahead and they took that and they moved it over here and they created a new subculture of laborers. And they used the exact same tricks that they used within the era of peasantry. Those components of Christianity, they change depending upon who you're talking to. And that's why we now have Christian nationalism, which is the idea that, oh, they're coming for us. Right. Right. There's an evil conspiracy out here that we have to do anything that we can in order to stave off this apocalyptic nature of things. And meanwhile, other people look at it as a matter of hope, as a matter of community, as a matter of trying to make their lives and other people's lives better. It is these twin components that have played out over and over again and have made these struggles uh, into the defining struggles of our time.
0: It's almost like we're practicing two different religions it's like they, right. they have almost nothing to do with each other. I, I hate that we're at the end of our time. I feel like I could use my entire two hour show on this topic. But I, I, I want to ask, how did you get out? Like, how did you not end up following the path of this? And, and I, I do hope that you we can get you to come back because I really want to I feel like we had to lay a foundation uh, because, quite frankly, my audience has a lot of Christianity built into it. And I want us to have a foundation for the historical underpinnings. And I hope the next time we can get you to come back to really talk about how this fuses into a white nationalist ethic, one that is, and, as you point out in the book, the crisis of our era and of our time. How on earth did you make it out of this environment to to write books like this? Because I, I feel like you might be in danger from your own people, Jared.
1: Uh, they don't care for me very much. Some of the time, uh, I, I, I don't know. I think I think what happened with me was I was questioning a lot of this stuff for a while. Going back to what I started with, I always want to know why. I you know I, I all these stories and all these narratives that we get, they're they're very interesting. I mean, history is fascinating, but there's always like that connective tissue that doesn't get build in and i wanted that and i kept asking questions and and i will say um one of the things I've never cared for very much is authority. I don't like it when people tell me to be quiet simply because they're above me. And so I pushed back against a lot of these leaders and I kept like, you know, it would almost be like this moment of being called an apostate because I was asking for more information. Mm. And then when I found out that you can go and get that information, if you go to either a university or you could even go to a Bible college and get that information, it started to upset me that I knew that there were these guardians of information. And that's, sort of uh, went into like a feedback loop where I just kept pushing and pushing and eventually I got out to the other side. But I will say very quickly, because I think it's important, I came out of writing this book with a new appreciation of what Christianity actually says Mm. versus how it is used for power. And that's an important thing, because I think a lot of people like me who push their way out of a church, specifically these extreme evangelical churches, you know, they become like aggressively atheist. They kind of sneer at the idea of spirituality or faith. But now that I look at it, I start to realize what it is about this faith that actually is good for people and also by the way what I think is good for the world. I think the idea of what Christ says about sin and 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 what, you know, who people are and what they can be and what this new you know new covenant is is very hopeful. And I I, I think that there's a lot to dissect here, and the more that I meet religious leaders who push against this Christian nationalism, the more hope that I have that this thing can possibly be brought out of the, the ravages of this.
0: I my I'm going to end on that note of hope because I am hopeful as well. And I'm reminded that, you know, Christianity did enter Africa. We've got the Coptic Christians who, who did not have this same sort of cultural approach to the faith. And so I'm going to put my hope on the fact that when we are dis, when we divorce power, from our, our spiritual walk, then I think we really can embody what Jesus was talking about. And I'm grateful for you to putting this out there. Y'all need to read the book, get the audio, whatever it is. It is important that we have access to this information. Uh, Jared, the next time we get you to come back, I really want to hone in on the white nationalist element because I am, after reading this, it occurred to me I should be asking it, are you a Jesus Christian or are you a white nationalist Christian? Because they are definitely not the same. How can people follow you, get their hand on the books and, 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 And just continue learning about this topic generally.
1: Well, as long as the site keeps working, I'm over at Twitter at J.Y. Sexton. (laughs) Uh, I I have a sub stack called Dispatches from a Collapsing State. Uh, The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. You can find it wherever books are sold.
0: I love it. My mother thought you were black, actually, when I told her I was interviewing you, because we went to a church with a Bishop Sexton. And so there's a whole line of black Sextons who are a part of this Christian church uh, in the Northeast. I had to to break it to her. Uh, Jared Yates Sexton, it's a real pleasure. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this. I'm looking forward to our continuing conversation about how this all impacts us today. We appreciate you.
1: Thank you.